All right, this evening we want to begin with one of the church fathers, Theodore of Cyrus. I had the privilege of <clears throat> translating the Latin version of his commentary on Philemon many years ago. It was published, as you can see, in the Westminster Theological Journal. <clears throat> I was joined with some others in that translation project. <clears throat> uh, they helped with the Greek version, and I did the Latin text. <clears throat> Theodore of Cyrus <clears throat> was born in Syria and was <clears throat> the bishop of a small village east of ancient Antioch. Uh, That site lies in ruins today. But nonetheless, Theodore was an impressive theologian and exegete in his own right. He's virtually unknown to the Western Church. He is well known in the Eastern Orthodox communions. He should be better known amongst us For he was present at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 and was a very strong defender of Nicene Christology as well as the hypostatic two-nature Christology of the Chalcedonian formula. If you're not familiar with the Chalcedonian formula, you ought to be. It is part of your tradition. It is one of the ecumenical creeds. And it is unfortunate that it is not contained amongst the ecumenical confessions of the Protestant Church, even though it is known in the Eastern Orthodox communions. And the reason it is your tradition is because it is the final Christological statement of the ancient church on the person and nature of Christ. First statement is Nicaea. In 325, and the Nicene Creed second statement is Niceno-Constantinople, Constantinople 381, when to the Nicene Creed was added a statement on the deity of the Holy Spirit because there were those so-called pneumatomachi, the fighters against the Spirit. There were a group in the church who fought against the deity of the Holy Ghost. And so Constantinople 1, 381 was called to settle the issue of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then in the 5th century, the early 400s, a debate arose by certain erroneous and even heretical individuals, Polinaris and Eutychus, and erstwhile Nestorius, though Nestorius I excuse from what he was accused of, though that's another story. But nonetheless, he was condemned at Chalcedon, and Theodore, who had defended him, reluctantly signed that condemnation, though he shouldn't have. And the story is said after he heard about the formula at Chalcedon, he said, I could have signed it too. <clears throat> but he had gone been banished for his alleged error, which was discovered to be not an error that he held at all, because in the 19th century, a work called the Bazaar of the Hierarchides was discovered in Syria, and a translation was made of an original Nestorian work in which he affirmed, in essence, everything that was in the Chalcedonian formula, which is a long way of saying that Theodore of Cyrus is important, so important that today, for the first time, his commentaries on the Bible, various Old and New Testament books are being translated into English for the first time by an Australian, an Australian scholar named Robert Hill, was doing an excellent job of getting them into print in English. 
So why do we bring Theodore into this discussion on the epistle of Philemon? He wrote a very short commentary on the epistle. It exists in a Greek recension and also in a Latin recension. As I indicated, I helped translate the Latin version some years ago. And in that commentary, he makes a statement which is important for our purposes. It's important for all of those who study the epistle to Philemon. And I have it there at the top of the page of the handout. Theodore writes, Philemon was among those who had believed. He lived in the city of Colossae. His house, in fact, has remained to this day. Now, you will notice that Theodore is a 5th century figure. He's writing in the 400s A.D. He is saying that the house of Philemon is still extant. The house of Philemon is still known. The house of Philemon is still standing. And you can go to the zip code and visit it. You can dial it up with its area code and phone it up. In other words... Theodore alleges that the house of Philemon, which was the center of the church at Colossae, remains even 400 years later. An interesting attestation and confirmation of the significance of that home, the church in that home, and the family that was associated with that home church. Now, of course, that home is no longer standing, but this statement indicates that it was still there and the appeal could be made to those who were reading Theodoret's commentary, those who knew about Paul's travels through Asia Minor. The appeal in the 5th century was, you can go see the building. All right, now, we raised the question at the outset of our thinking tonight about the audience of this epistle. The audience or the recipients of this epistle. And since we began with Theodore's statement about the fact that the house was still standing in his day, we want to ask the spatial question. The spatial question about the venues. Now, there's a method to my madness here emphasizing the space which is involved. It not only fills in part of the narrative, but it helps solve one of the dilemmas of the first two verses, in my opinion. So, I'm going to go slowly, because this may seem somewhat esoteric. I assure you it is not, but of course that's my opinion. So, um, if you have any questions or you get lost, don't hesitate to speak up or raise your hand. Now, back to this issue of spatial element. We're talking about space and the venue of space in this epistle. There are, in fact, two spatial venues in the epistle to Philemon. What are they? Rome is one. What's the other one? 
Colossae is the other. All right, so there are the two spatial venues. All right, now, in this space, events are taking place. Events are taking place in the space in Rome. Events are taking place in the space in Colossae. I want you, you, I want you to put some meat, some flesh on this epistle. I want you to think of living space in Rome and Colossae. All right, now, that's space in general. That's the general spatial venue, Rome and Colossae. Can we be more specific? Is there space in particular in these spatial venues general? Is there space particular in the general venue of Rome with respect to this epistle? Prison. Prison, very good. Is there space particular with respect to Colossi, space general? Philemon's house. Here we go. Theodoret again. Once again, you see the method of my madness of introducing you to Theodoret's statement. All right. So we have the general venues, space in Rome and Colossae. That's very broad, general space. But we have a very narrow or particular portion of that broad space, namely the prison in Rome where Paul is incarcerated and the house of Philemon, where his family and the church meets. Now, interface. The interface between the spaces. What is the vehicle of the interface between these spatial venues? The epistle of Paul to Philemon. Very good. All right, so the epistle interfaces the space of origin of the epistle, Rome, prison in Rome, and the epistle interfaces the space of destination of the epistle, Colossae, particularly Philemon's home in Colossae. How does Paul's space come to the recipients of this letter? It comes to them by means of this letter. Paul communicates the elements of his spatial condition to them by means of this epistle. Now, the other side of that question is, how does their space Come to Paul. How does the space of the Colossians come to the Apostle? Very good. It comes by means of Onesimus. He knows about their space because Onesimus has come to him in prison. And he's telling the story of what he experienced in that space. Now, Paul takes his space to them by means of this letter so that they will understand his condition. They will understand his existential situation. All right, now, 
in these terms, I trust you understand that my method is not madness, but that I am attempting to get you to understand how this spatial dimension, this spatial separation is overcome by means of the intercommunion, not only of the letter, but also of the narrative that Onesimus would have reported. All right, now, let's go a step further. Does Philemon's home contain dual spatial elements? And if so, if there are dual spatial elements in Philemon's home, identify them. What are they? There are dual elements. What are they? Identify them. The church and the house. The church. And slavery. The church. Slavery. And slavery. And slavery? No. The church is a spatial venue. What else? Pardon? The private living. That's it. That's the word we wanted. We want a private space in that home for whom? For the family, right? Okay, for the family space. And we want a public space. The space for the church in the house. Very good. All right. So, the spaces are distinguished by their occupants. Philemon plus. Who else? Name? Apia. Anybody else? Archippus. Okay, so those, those three persons in the private space ostensibly. Ostensibly. Keep in mind that this is hotly disputed by the commentators. But we will suggest that there are spatial elements within spatial elements, and we're going to do that in order to demonstrate something about the individuals who occupy that space. All right, so in that home, there is Philemon plus Apphia plus Archippus, and then there is the church, which also includes Philemon, Apphia, Archippus. Very good. All right, now, yes. Onesimus? No, not not at this time. He was, past tense. But he is now, when the letter's being written, he is now in Rome. So I'm thinking about the situation with the two distinct spatial venues. Any other question? All right, now let's examine the symmetry of expression in these first two verses. The grammar here is quite regular. You will notice that there is a recipient in the dative case. We noted last week that that's the to preposition. Okay. The recipient in the dative case plus an adjective plus a second adjective 
which is a co or fellow or sith word in Greek. In this case, synergo, which means fellow worker. How many of you had physics? Come on, Ben. How many of you had physics? Have you had physics? Did you have physics way back when? No? Ben? Did you have a course in physics? Yes, I thought you did <laughs> with your scientific background. Art, did you have a course in physics? Okay. What word do you see in that Greek word, synergo, that you recognize? Ben? No, it's not ergo Latin. This is ergo Greek. You do see the word erg, E-R-G, which, of course, is a unit of force in physics. That's, and it comes from this Greek word for work. So fellow worker. So there's, there's something there that you'll recognize. And then it's followed by the first person plural pronoun. Which is, in English, our. All right, notice the pattern. Philemon, plus the first adjective, beloved, plus the second adjective, fellow worker, sunergo, plus the pronoun, pronoun our. Now, as we go on in that uh, verse, Two, we have a recipient, again, in the dative, and then a noun, and then another recipient, and another noun, but a noun which is also a co or fellow or sith word, this time, sistriote, which means fellow soldier or co-soldier. Right, notice the symmetry. The same dative of recipient begins the phrase. In the first, it's to Philemon. In the second, it's to Apphia. And then two related noun or noun adjective complements. <clears throat> Beloved and fellow worker with respect to Philemon, sister, and fellow soldier with respect to Ophia and Archippus. And then that second parallel line ends exactly the same way the first line ends with the personal pronoun our. Now, our is at the end of the phrase in the Greek construction. We would put it before the fellow soldier. But in this case, Greek places it after the noun or the adjective as the case may be. This is a symmetrical pattern of parallelism. And that symmetry, that parallelism, that literary grammatical uh, <coughs> symmetry implies something which I think is telltale. I am suggesting that the way Paul writes this address to the recipients of this letter 
and does it in symmetrical, parallel, and uh, and and uh, overlapping, virtually overlapping, grammatical fashion, is because there is a parallel of relation in these two lines. There is a symmetry of relationship in these two lines. These two lines are an integral unit. They are describing a unit of integrity, a unit of wholeness in and of itself. These two lines are describing a group of persons who are a group in themselves. In fact, I'm going to be so bold as to contradict some of the commentators and say that these two lines arranged so symmetrically are describing a household unit. That the individuals named in this parallel fashion are part of the private household of that Colossian home. And, and to support my conclusion, I note that they are distinguished in this line from the church unit. To Philemon, to Apphia, to Archippus, and Chi conjunctive, and to the church in your house. Private unit distinguished from the public unit, private unit set off from the church, though joined to it by the conjunction and which also brings the private family unit into relationship with the public church unit. All right, it is because of the way Paul has crafted these two verses, particularly with respect to the dative of recipient, that in the space in Colossae, there are two other spaces. There's a private family space, and there is a more public ecclesiastical space. And he does it in order to address both of those spatial units. The church in your home, the church that is part of your dwelling house. Big deal? Yes, I think it is. Because as we make our way through this epistle, we are going to see the apostle use the language of endearment, which is familial and ecclesiastical. He is going to use language which reflects upon family relations. In fact, he even uses it in the language or vocabulary of this verse, brother and sister. This is familial language. And it reinforces the fact that he recognizes this family unit in this Colossian home. Now, why does he use the term co-worker 
synergo, fellow worker. Why does he associate Philemon with that Greek term? Why couldn't he have just said helper, servant, fellow believer? Well, there's something in his mind when he writes this word about Philemon. And let's take a look at possible explanations for what may be in his mind. Let's turn back, first of all, to 1 Thessalonians 3.2. 1 Thessalonians 3.2. And when someone has it, would they please read it out? And he sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker, to the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage him as to Notice what he calls Timothy there. Fellow worker, sunergo. Same word that he uses here with respect to Philemon. Also, Romans 16.21. Let's thumb our way back to Romans 16, verse 21. And when you have it, please read it out. We accept the reading of the King James on occasion. My work fellow, was that how was that what you read? <laughs> King James needed to get things backwards, you know, or or reverse backwards. <laughs> All right, once again, Romans sixteen twenty one, Timothy is called a sunergo, a fellow worker. It's the same word that he uses here in Philemon verse one. So he uses a word which echoes his relationship with Timothy. He's already indicated that this letter is coming from himself and from Timothy. Timothy, my fellow worker, is coming to you. Philemon, my fellow worker. Synergo, synergo. It's perfectly appropriate. Timothy sitting alongside of him as his synergo. And he's thinking of Philemon and what he is to him in terms of the Colossian church. Synergo, a fellow worker like Timothy is. So he gives him the same title that he has already given to Timothy elsewhere. All right, now let's go to fellow soldier. Let's go revisit Pete's question of last week when he asked why does he call him fellow soldier. Let's ponder that a little more deeply. In other words, Dennison had to do more homework. Thank you, Pete. Okay. Why use the term co or fellow soldier sistratiote in the Greek? All right, let's start with Philippians 1.13. Philippians 1.13. And when you have it, please read it out. Right now, Randy's version had palace guard. Does any version that you have in front of you say anything other than palace guard? Imperial guard. 
Imperial Guard. Marge? Praetorian. The Praetorian Guard. <laughs> yes. All right. Now, how does that reflect upon fellow soldier with respect to Archippus? All right, hold that in your mind, and let's go to Acts 28. Acts 28, verse 16. Philippians is a prison epistle, correct? So in Philippians, a prison epistle, he's talking about the guards. What about Acts 28, 16? Read it out when you have it. When he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. A soldier is guarding him in Rome, in his imprisonment in Rome. Drop your eyes down to verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. A chain. Chain to what? Chain to the guard. Chain to the soldier who is guarding him. All right, so in his imprisonment in Rome... In the book of Acts, he actually talks about being chained to a soldier guard. In Philippians 1, he talks about being present with soldier guards around him, if not bound to them once again. Why does he call Archippus a fellow soldier? Because on his mind are these guards or a guard to whom he has bound in that Roman prison when he's writing this letter. So thinking about his <clears throat> soldiery for Christ and drawing Archippus into that very same mirror paradigm of his own, that he is a Christian soldier along with Paul, Christian soldier, onward Christian soldiers. All right, that's, <clears throat> that's my suggestion about this proximate relation of space, Paul in Rome, bound to the imperial soldiers, and it mirrors the space which is remote, namely Christ, the, the uh, commander of Christian soldiers like Paul and like Archippus. Paul, a soldier for Christ in Rome, even in prison. Archippus, a soldier for Christ in Colossae, in the home of his parents. All right, now that may not absolutely dogmatically seal the issue as to why Paul uses these terms, but you have a reciprocal frame that is, imagery that the apostle is familiar with that captures the characterization of those to whom he writes. Philemon, a fellow worker like Timothy, who is with me, my fellow worker. And Archippus, a fellow soldier like me, myself, chained to these imperial soldiers, only I am not a soldier of the Roman Imperium. 
I have a soldier of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, to wind out this section of our study, let's take a look at the characters in order, Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus. What language does he use to talk about Philemon? He calls him beloved in that first verse. And I'm going to ask Dan if he'll read the King James Version of that verse for us. Can you come back to me? I switched to the ASB. Well, bless your heart. But I think that the King James has this reading. Have you found it yet? I'm happy to wait. First one, Philemon one. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved fellow laborer. Well, they didn't translate it the way I thought they did. Okay, my memory is, is uh, <clears throat> rusty on the King James reading. Thank you for looking it up, Dan. <clears throat> All right, do any of you have beloved brother there in your text with brother in italics? NASB has beloved brother. All right, it's in italics because it's not in the Greek text, although it is in some manuscripts. So brother has been inserted after beloved of Philemon. Why? Why would some manuscripts have inserted brother, Adelphos, in the text when it's not there in the older manuscripts? True, but why stick it in the verse right there? Maybe because he called, maybe because he called Timothy. Exactly. Very good, Ben. In other words, the, the scribes who were copying later on decided to repeat <laughs> the word for brother in Greek and stick it in again with respect to Philemon, even as it had been present with respect to Timothy. So there is a, shall we say, logical reason for the duplication. However, the insertion is not in the oldest manuscripts and therefore is suspect and should be italicized as the New American Standard does. It doesn't change the inflection of the verse that much. However, it is taking a liberty with the, with the uh, text if, in fact, the autographer of the apostle did not Repeat it. In other words, we'd have to find an older manuscript that actually had the word for brother in Greek in order to final, to be a final decision on this matter. However, it's not well supported by the majority of the manuscript tradition and therefore that's the reason it's italicized. However, Philemon is called brother explicitly in verse 7 of this letter. And he is called brother in verse 20 of this letter. So there are two places in this letter where 
Philemon is justifiably called a brother. What about Apphia? Sister. Sister, okay. And what about Archippus? Fellow soldier. A fellow soldier, but no family name. So I put in parentheses there a blank that you can fill in with child. So we have brother, sister, child. And over on the other blank, fellow worker and fellow soldier, which are parallel. Now you will notice Paul does not use the term father, mother, or son of these three individuals. Husband, wife, or son of these three individuals. He uses implicitly brother. He will call him brother later on for Philemon. Sister and implicitly child. Why? Family unit. Yes, family unit, and also the language of the the church family. So this language occupies both spaces, both the private family unit and the public ecclesiastical unit. He can call him Brother Philemon because it fits with respect to the family and with respect to the church. He can call her sister Apphia because it fits with respect to the family and with respect to the church. And call Archippus the son because it fits with the family as child fits with the church. And in fact, he will call Onesimus his child in verse 10 of this letter. Now, the conclusion of this exercise is to note that these familiar terms, familial terms of endearment are mirror relations for both spaces and both venues. Namely, the venue and space of prison in Rome for Paul and those who are with him there. He calls Onesimus a child or his son in the faith. Timothy, his brother, he himself, virtually the father of Onesimus in terms of whom he has begotten in, in his bonds. He can, call, he can use this language a brother, sister, and child with respect to the family of Philemon in Colossae and the church that meets in his home. These are spatial units, distinct venues with persons, life and blood, flesh and blood persons in those venues. I conclude that Philemon, Apphia, and Archippus are family members. Father, mother, and son. And I do so on the basis of this monumental pile of evidence which I have presented this evening to justify that conclusion. And I trust that you are all completely overwhelmed and persuaded. Now, um, I actually did not come to this conclusion until the last week, which I've been working on this in order to try to solve what appears to be a conundrum for the commentators, <clears throat> because I believe the apostle is doing something intentional here, and the grammar that we laid out in terms of the symmetry and parallelism is my confirmation of that point. He's doing this intentionally. He's doing it intentionally because he's binding together those that are bound by that grammatical parallelism. 
they are bound as a family unit in Colossae. A hand was up. Nancy, were you uh, raising a question? No? Okay. Yes, Scott. Since uh, we were talking about the terms brother and sister related to family unit, um, what if someone were to say, well, I can see how they're related to the church unit because they describe the relationship of these people in the church, but they don't actually describe their own familial relationships. In other words, Appia is not the sister of Philemon, she's the wife of Philemon. Timothy's not the brother of anybody. You know, that kind of thing. How, how would you think about that? I mean, just thinking they are familial type terms. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, I think it's the language of the familial unit. So it's, it's broadly construed there. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's my retort. If, if you're not persuaded, that's all right too. Happy to be persuaded. I like the idea of the double, you know, the separation of the two groups and the parallel between the two. That, that itself. This, yeah, this language, this familial language, is used uh, <clears throat> throughout the epistle, and so I'm, I'm justifying its use here in terms of what is in those spatial distinctions. But thanks for the pushback. Go ahead. He wants to push harder. Go ahead. No, no, this is a this is a push forward in your direction on, on the interpretation of the fellow soldier might be related to the prisoner. Have you considered uh, noticing uh, the parallel between fellow worker in one one and fellow worker fellow workers in one point four? Perhaps them being a bracket and in the middle would be fellow soldier parallel to fellow prisoner. <coughs> That's a good thought. I hadn't thought of it. I knew about the uh, synergos or synergoi in the plural in the end, uh, but I hadn't thought about uh, tracing, you know, any other symmetry between fellow soldier and some other uh, parallel term. So that that's worth consideration, and thank you for pushing me forward. Yes, Cheryl. Uh, my version says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and it is not italicized. Yes, beloved would it would be beloved brother if the the italics would be with would be brother if it were inserted. So it's translating the majority reading of the Greek text, as the New American Standard does if you drop brother out. In other words, the majority of the Greek text should say Philemon. Beloved and fellow worker. Okay. Time to come up for air. Take your break. Now we turn to the third verse, which is the usual or customary Pauline greeting or salutation. Grace to you and peace. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Slightly varied on occasion by the Apostle to say the Trinity of greetings, grace, mercy, and peace. But this is the usual form of his salutation. And it contains Greek and Hebrew elements. Why? Why do you think it contains Greek and Hebrew elements? 
had both people in the congregation. Conceivably. Anything else? Nancy? He knew quite a few languages. Yes. That is true. What what languages did he know? Well, Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew for sure. Probably okay. Latin. He may have known a little bit of Latin. He may have. I'm not sure about that. He moves in both worlds because he knows the languages, because he has people from both worlds in the Christian churches. There are Jewish Christians or converted Jews, no longer Jews, but Christians. And there are converted Hellenists, no longer Hellenists, but Christians. All right, so it's easy to understand why he has this language which reflects both cultures from which he was steeped, in which he was steeped, and out of which he came to Christ. All right, now... Uh, the language here, grace and peace, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word hain, which means grace, and you'll be familiar with the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which is there, <clears throat> should remind you of something else from the Old Testament. Does it ring a bell? And be, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Shalom. And where does that come from? What do we call that? It's the ironic benediction. Where do you find it? Numbers is read, correct? Chapter? You hear it so often, you have to know where to find it and look at it. Pardon? Twelve. No, chapter six. Number six, and the benediction is in verses 24 to 26. But these terms, grace, hain, and shalom, actually in the ironic benediction, it's the verb of, of the root hain to be gracious or to show grace. But it is still the same root lemma. <clears throat> those, uh, those words are in verse 25 and verse 26, respectively. All right now, in Greek, <clears throat> the word for grace is charis, and the word for peace is eirene. I'm going to ask Abigail if she recognizes an English word in that Greek word, eirene. This English word will undoubtedly be on the SAT. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> well, she ought to have fun taking it sometime. Just as an exercise to, a, to a stretch her brain or to prepare her brain and stretch to deal with it. Anybody know what I'm referring to? Irene? Marge? Irene. Irene, yes. Irene, person of... Peaceful countenance. Okay, it comes right out of the Greek word irene, irenic, spelled I-R-E-N-I-C. Now, Paul takes uh, the word charis here instead of the secular Hellenistic or Greek greeting 
karain, which means greetings. So in a secular Greek letter, the greeting would include the Greek word karain, greetings to you, salutations to you. Paul does not use that term. He uses a word which is related to it. It is a cognate of it, but he does not use it. He uses the word charis. Why? Why does he depart from the traditional convention? No. He still has a greeting. He has a greeting which uses a word which is close to the secular one. What did, what did I hear somebody? Theological. Theological. Okay. Why? Explain yourself. Expand. Well, he wants to draw them into the grace of God from the very beginning. Um, so he's, in a sense, ex- he's expressing the grace of Christ as, in fact, he is the apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is not a term of horizontal component. <clears throat> This is a term which has a vertical and a horizontal component. You remember last week we mentioned that Paul uses this ancient uh, Hellenistic or Greco-Roman letter form, but he adopts it. He, in fact, expands and enriches it. And here's an instance in which you see that. He doesn't take the flat karain, greetings, horizontal best wishes to you. He brings the vertical component into that horizontal arena. He brings the vertical component of God's grace, that which is origin, that which originates in the eschatological arena, that is the arena of God Himself, and comes into history by His efficacious act and action. Randy, yeah, what I'm uh, he's trying to distinguish. Grace from the profane, you know, common use of the word. So you're in using pro- you're, you're using profane in the common sense. Yeah, and okay. just meaning common. Yeah. Okay. All right. Or ordinary or whatever. Yes. Well, you're right. So, so he is enriching this term. He's using a term which is much richer than karain. All right. So let's work with the word grace. Yes, uh, Ben. I just have to remember that James in his uses the word greetings. I was just going over that the other day. And, uh, so James in his epistle uses karain? Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, you know, what, what, what would you make of that? I have to think about that. that. The Greek translation of that. Well, um, Greek, uh, Ben, you know enough Greek to read it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... I'd have to think about why uh, James is doing it and Paul's not. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have not thought about that, so I appreciate Ben bringing it to my attention. That's the exact word, Ben, is what you're saying? Yeah, that's what you're saying. Thank you. Well. What did you say, Scott? He uses it. In Acts 15 as well. James at the Council of Jerusalem? Yeah. Or the letter that they write? The letter that they write in in chapter 15. Okay. Well, let's...
let's uh, consider grace. And we need to define it. So let's have a definition of grace. Abigail, let's start with you. Um, Define grace for me. I'm pretty sure that grace means that it's it's like mercy. So um, it's like mercy. Yeah, he's having grace on on sinners. He's not. He's giving them a second chance. Giving them a second chance. A first chance. All right, it's like mercy. Uh, Abigail says it's like mercy. Okay, anybody else want to give me a definition of grace? Bob? Unmerited favor. Okay. Unmerited favor. Anybody else want to add to like mercy or unmerited favor? So we could say undeserved favor? about what grace is to a sinner. Okay? He said the opposite of deserved. It's undeserved. Yeah. Okay. So does undeserved capture that? Okay. When you say something is undeserved, that does not necessarily imply that you deserve the opposite. We deserve the opposite of grace. Yeah, well, well, we're just thinking. We're just thinking what grace is. We're not thinking what what wrath is. Okay. So if we wanted to define wrath, then we could talk about it is deserved. It is merited. But right now, we're just talking about what God's grace is. Any? You want to add anything else to the definition, Dan? Didn't someone? I don't know if it was Meredith Klein. Or if I'm allowed to mention his name. Uh, demerited favor. Wasn't that the word that he used? Demerited favor? Demerited favor? God? I don't know. No, I, 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 I'm not familiar with that. Okay. Yes? Are you talking about free or merited gift of God? Okay. Sharon wants to add the word free to this. And she also added God to this. Yes. I'll use the symbol for God, the theological shorthand. So that little theta there means God. All right. Now, why would we place God here in our definition? He's the one who does it. Okay. Is he the source of it? Yes. Divine. Does it come from the sacraments? No. No. Does it come from the church? No. Does it come from you? No. Does it come from your works? No. Definitely not. Does it come from your social status? No. 
Does it come from what church you belong to? If you're an OP, you got grace. If you're not an OP, you don't get grace? No. Only perfect church. <laughs> Are there some Methodists that get grace? Yes. Yes, there are. All right, now, we're talking about putting God in our definition because he's the source of grace. It comes from no other source. Now, of course, it comes from God, the triune God, the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a fundamental principle to underscore the source of the grace that Paul is wishing towards the uh, Christians in Colossae. Not coming from the Hellenistic culture, not coming from the Greek, for the Roman emperor, from Caesar, it's coming from God. <clears throat> now, the word free, which was uh, added to our definition, <clears throat> what does free mean here? Unrestrained. Don't have to pay for it. Don't have to pay for it. Well, uh, how about we put unearned here? If we put unearned there, it's a free, unearned favor of God. Do we have a problem there? Dan, do we have a problem there if we say free, unearned? No. Well, it's a tautology. It's a tautology, isn't it? Does Abigail know what a tautology is? No. Okay. You know, I'll let your dad explain that to you. It's redundant. It's redundant. It's saying the same thing. So obviously, free here does not mean unearned. What does it mean? Unqualified? No. God just does it. What's that? God just does it. God just does it. Why? How? Because he wants to. That's an expression of his what? True? The expression of it. Come on, all you Calvinists. Sovereignty. sovereignty of God. Exactly. It's free. That is, it's a sovereign, unearned favor. It's free in the sense that it is bound up with his own good pleasure. So free in the definition does not mean you can't buy it. Free in the definition means God is sovereignly free in the dispensing of it. He gives it to whom whomsoever he will. Does he give it to everybody? No. How do you know? I have to believe in him in order to receive How do you know he doesn't give it to everybody? Here's the story. <laughs> How does Cheryl know God doesn't give it to everybody? Somewhere in the Bible, I think it says that, something to that effect. I can't place it right now. Well, there'd be a number of places in the Bible where it says that you would know, but because of what it says, you would know he doesn't give it to everybody. How in those places would you know he doesn't give it to everybody? Abigail, how would you know he doesn't give it to everybody? What places in the Bible? What would, what would it be saying? Your grandmother's trying to help you. 
Well, your grandmother's not trying to help you. Go for it, Grandma. Nancy? Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, something more general than that. This is easy. True. Bob? Jacob had no love, but he saw her by the True. But? John 3.16. But? Well, that's close. <laughs> but, I heard it. Hell. Hell, exactly. <clears throat> he doesn't give it to everybody because hell is there, isn't it? Is there anybody in hell that has grace? No, there's nobody in hell that has grace. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be in hell if you had grace. So the very fact that hell exists is testimony to the fact that grace is not given to all. Ben? Well, I was going to say that, but hell would still have to be there for the devil and his angels, wouldn't it? Yes, that is true. But we're talking about sinners. Man, we're talking about human sinners, okay? But hell would not necessarily be the reason why God doesn't give it to everybody. Hell had to be there for the devil and his angels. Uh, well, uh, we have to take on the discussion of the probation of the angels. But in any case, people are going to hell. That's what we. All right. Well, that's easier. Okay. You 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 get the point here. The point is that grace isn't given to all people because not all people go to heaven. All right, so grace in exercise of God's sovereignty is not bestowed universally. It is bestowed particularly. And all the texts that you were citing are appropriate to that distinction of the particularity of God's sovereign grace. But this word free here is referring to God's sovereign disposition to give his grace to whomsoever he pleases. And whomsoever he pleases do not merit it. They do not earn it. They do not deserve it. And it is a divine favor. It is a gift. A free, unmerited gift which comes from God and God alone through Christ alone by the Holy Spirit alone. Now that definition which is in front of you is a definition which is compiled from the writings of Augustine. And it is compiled from his writings in the Pelagian controversy. His controversy with those in the early church, particularly Pelagius and his disciples, Celestius and Julian of Econum, who taught that a man and sinful man could merit God's favor. They could earn rewards that would give them heaven as a blessing. They could earn God's kindness. They could earn God's mercy. They could earn God's eternal heaven. <clears throat> that was a uh, <clears throat> monumental struggle in the 5th century. In the 400s AD, Augustine wrote thousands of pages in relationship to that debate, both with Pelagius and particularly with Julian of Econum. The English translation of his works against Julian of Econum take up four huge English volumes of well over 2,000 pages in English translation. I had the pleasure of reading through them uh, two summers ago, and it was a magisterial experience. At any rate, what we're describing here is a uh, generally Augustinian definition of grace, which is also inherited by the Reformed churches and becomes an Augustinian Calvinistic definition of grace, but it is in real 
uh, real uh, basic terms, it is a biblical definition of grace. What Augustine and Calvin are defining with respect to the grace of God is something which is found particularly in Ephesians 2 and in other places of the Pauline corpus. There was a hand here, Randy. Well, there is a certain sense in which heaven has to be earned, and that plays into it. Otherwise, you just have indiscriminate dispensation of uh, heaven to everybody. It has to be earned, and it is earned by Jesus Christ. No, we're not we're yes. not talking about that. Our focus is upon what grace is with respect to a sinner. We're not talking about how Christ satisfies the work which is necessary to obtain grace. We're describing what condition the, the sinner is and how grace remedies that condition, how it comes to him, what his condition is, what it is. In fact, it is a gift and who its source is. So we're looking specifically at grace in that sense. But it relates to what Ben is indiscriminately everybody being forgiven. You know. All right, we'll move on to the next point which is to look at how grace here in verse 3 is bracketed with grace in verse 25. So that the grace with which Paul blesses or wishes his greetings to the Colossian church and to Philemon and his family and the church in his house is a grace which brackets this epistle. The epistle, in a sense, begins with the greetings of grace and it ends with the conclusion greeting or benediction of grace. <clears throat> this letter then is surrounded by the grace of God. The body of this letter, the contents of this are surrounded by the free, unmerited favor of God. All right, now, what about this relationship of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? <clears throat> Let's think about this language and what Paul is suggesting by the use of it. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, you will notice that God the Father dispenses grace and peace in this verse. And so does the Lord Jesus Christ dispense grace and peace. Ergo, God the Father equals the Lord Jesus Christ with respect to the equality of power and equality of source with respect to grace and peace. There is an equanimity between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with respect to the dispensation of grace and peace. Keeping, then, that language of equanimity, there is an equality between these two persons in this verse. The next step is to notice the Greek word in this verse for Lord. The Greek word for Lord here is kyrios. It is the Old Testament word for Yahweh or Jehovah. Kyrios here in Philemon 3 
equates what God is in the Old Testament with what Jesus is in the New Testament. The same Greek word which is used in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah is used to describe or attribute Jesus the Lord, Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ then is God the Lord as the Father is God the Lord. We have moved beyond an equanimity of power and source to an equality of being. An equality of being, namely the being of God, yet with a distinction of person, a father and a son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Greek term is equivalent to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and Paul uses it freely, openly, without limitation or hesitation here, he is making an affirmation of the equal deity of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The equal deity. Okay? So with respect to deity, the Father and the Son are equal in godness. What God is, they are. And the Holy Spirit as well. We'll comment in a minute as to why Paul leaves the Holy Spirit out of this epistle. So, when we talk about the godness of God, we're talking about his essence. His being. He is a divine being. He is a divine substantial being. What is the substance of that divine being? It is godness. It is not any kind of substance that we know of. It has no form. It is not created. It is a living essence. That is what the deity of Father, of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit is. It is the being or the essence of God. However, even as we recognize the equality of divine essence in the Father and the Son, we recognize the distinction of person. They are equal with respect to godness, to the deity of the essence of the being of God. But within that equal, essential godness, there are persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll put him in brackets for the sake of our discussion. How then do we keep our categories clear without confusing them? How do we use human language about a divine mystery without muddying it up, without leaning too far one way or the other? This is how we do it.
distincte non divise. That's Latin, of course. The Godhead is composed of distinct persons who are not divided persons. They are not separated persons. They are united in terms of their deity and their essential godness. Now, this phrase, distincte non divise, comes from a third century church father. Here we are with the church fathers again. Tertullian of North Africa, who in his book, Adverses Praxius against Praxius the Heretic, laid down this clause in chapter 11 of that famous work, and it has stayed as the slogan, the motto of all articulate, precise, and orthodox Trinitarianism. If you don't remember the the Latin, remember the English. They are one in essential godness. They are one in the being of God. They are one deity. They are one distinct in person, but not divided from their oneness in deity. There is a very simple articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this verse places before us that distinction. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Distinction of person, but not division or separation of ontos, usia, being, essence, divine substance, godness in and of itself. You say, how can that be? Here's Denison, Cheryl, and Robert. Three persons, distinct and separate. Well, because it can be with God, who is beyond our comprehension. It can be with respect to the Trinity, which is beyond our understanding. There is no contradiction within the Godhead with respect to this pattern. This is the closest we can get to articulating it in human language and preserving the biblical character of the doctrine of the Trinity. All right, now, Tertullian helps us a great deal with this formula. But the church will go on, beyond Tertullian, at Nicaea, with the Nicene Creed, and perfect that language. And then it will go on at Constantinople in 381 and perfect that language even more by articulating the deity of the Holy Spirit. There is one divine essence and three persons, distinct but not separate. And then at Chalcedon, it will finalize that discussion by talking about how the Lord Jesus Christ is God and man, two natures in one person, without division or confusion forever. What is uh, present here in this third verse of Philemon is, in fact, a part of the Trinitarian theology of the New Testament church. And it is in part because Paul places the language here in respect to equality and distinction that the church then proceeds to think as Tertullian does, to think as Athanasius does at Nicaea, to think as uh, the three Cappadocians do at Constantinople, to think as Hillary and Ambrose do and with respect to Chalcedon, to think as Augustine does, to think as all the Trinitarian theologians of the early church think, a tradition which has been embraced 
even by the Calvinistic Reformation of Protestantism. That's your tradition. That's your legacy. But you see, it is here in the text, in principle. And therefore, you face this issue of Paul dealing with the equality of person, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can they be equal? How can they be equal personally? Because they are God, fully God, each of them, as well as the Holy Spirit. But they have a distinct personal center of consciousness. So we have this mystery of the one in three and the three in one without any division, separation, or confusion. Now, you'll notice also that Paul uses that personal pronoun, our, in this verse. I'm going to translate that verse using that personal pronoun a little more literally. From God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You will notice that the pronoun our governs both sides of that conjunction and in this verse. The Lord Jesus Christ is ours in the same way that God the Father is ours. The Lord Jesus Christ is ours as God, for he is God. He is God, the second person of the Trinity. From God our Father and from our Lord God Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is saying here. That is what he is clearly implying here. He is implying, he is implying Equality of possession because of equality of person, even though distinction of consciousness. Well, why doesn't he bring the Holy Spirit into his formula here? Why doesn't he say grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord by the operation of the Holy Spirit? Why doesn't he say it here? My suggestion is... First of all, he uses father in a familial way, even in a paternal way, as he had used brother and sister in verses 1 and 2 in a familial and paternal manner. In other words, this uh, paternal relationship of God begetting brothers and sisters inside the family of faith is language which depends upon father and son in the Lord Jesus Christ greeting in verse 3. And finally, the Lord Jesus Christ communicates mastery. Why would Paul use the term kyrios? Because the Greek term kyrios is used to describe masters of slaves in the New Testament routinely. As an example, you can take a look at Matthew 10:24 and Matthew 18:25 in the Greek. <clears throat> but the word Lord and Master in those places is the Greek word kyrios. So why would he use it here? Because he's drawing attention to the lordship mastery of Jesus Christ as the background to this discussion about the relationship between Philemon, the master, the kyrios, and uh, and Onesimus, the slave, the doulos. That's my suggestion as to why the spirit is left out of the uh, salutary uh, greeting. 
<clears throat> but of course, I can't prove it. It is interesting that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this epistle. <clears throat> it does not mean that Paul has forgotten himself. He's, but <clears throat> he is a theologian of the Holy Spirit elsewhere in his epistles. So there is a reason why he is avoiding it or, it's, or, or play, putting the Holy Spirit off to the side. I don't mean he's diminishing him or degrading him. He's simply not making him prominent here because he's looking at familial or paternal relationships within this community. And so he's going to focus upon those terms which will highlight or heighten that particular uh, vocabulary and imagery. Yes, March. Um, in many of the salutations of Paul, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned. It's, you know, God our Father, Lord Christ. So it's not just this. No, and that is correct. That is correct. So uh, you would once again ask the same question in those other epistles. I'm saying I'm contextualizing to this particular epistle. I think it's because of the use of the familial language here. My opinion. It may be the same reason in the others, but once again, I'd have to look at, it, at every one of them to think about that issue. Yeah, sometimes he uses only Jesus. Sometimes he uses only the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know. Yeah, I was just looking at it. Sometimes it says Lord right. Jesus Christ. Sometimes it says Jesus Christ. Right. There, there are variations. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Randy? God's free sovereignty would not be capable if Christ does not go to the cross. God would not be sovereign and free, otherwise he would be um, compromising his whole. That is true. <clears throat> we did ask the soteriological question out of how the grace of God comes to individuals, or we didn't ask the soteriological question with respect to the Trinity. <clears throat> but of course, that's what Athanasius and the Nicene Fathers were dealing with, that's what the Constantinopolitan fathers were dealing with. That's what the Chalcedonian fathers were dealing with. In other words, <clears throat> these struggles of the church with why do we need a God-man to be our Savior? Because there is no possibility of satisfying an eternal debt unless an eternal person pays it. Therefore, the person... The, the deity of the person of the Savior is essential to the salvation of those who benefit from that saving grace. If Jesus of Nazareth is not God, you are without hope and of all men and women most miserable. It depends on his personal identity, who he is, before what he does can be of eternal significance. The Trinity is absolutely essential to Christianity. The deity of Christ is absolutely essential to Christianity. Without Jesus of Nazareth being God, there is no Christianity. That's the whole purpose of J. Gresham Mason's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Because he's answering Adolf Van Harnack's book, What is Christianity? In which Van Harnack despises the notion of the deity of Jesus of Nazareth. And so does much of the mainline church these days. So, keep your doctrine pure. Keep your orthodoxy straight. Keep your church history in good order. And understand why the church 
at Nicaea, at Constantinople, at Charleston, understand why these debates and decisions were, were, <coughs> were, were uh, debated and drawn out and the conclusions were based upon the testimony of the infallible Word of God. That's where we take our stand. Shall we close in prayer? We rejoice, O Lord, in the literary art of this epistle. Paul's drawing his audience into his space even as he's drawn into theirs. And that space being reflective of your space. The heavenly space of eternal grace and eternal shalom. We are grateful for that because of who your son Jesus Christ is, O glorious Father. And we thank you, most blessed Spirit, for bringing the benefit of that grace to our hearts and lives. So bless us richly in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is your grace and peace, O God our Father, and your benediction, most blessed Holy Spirit. And so we go from this place in that spirit and in that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.